0: Because of that environment that was created, it enabled me not just to win and to kind of finish my career on a high note, but to become a better soccer player. And, you know, players think they know it all and they think they've, uh, they've figured it all out. And we, we really have it.
1: This is For the Love of the Game, hosted by old school college soccer coaches Ralph Perez and Ray Reid. Between these two, you're listening to 81 years of coaching college athletes, nearly 900 career wins, five national championships, and approximately 17,546 names in their contact lists. On this podcast, they grab some of those names and talk about what's going on in the soccer world today. Here they are, Ralph and Ray. All
2: right, Ray, you ready? Yes, sir. We're going to talk. is Alexi Lalas in a few minutes here. But Ray, let's start with this. Give me uh, some of your memories of the 1994 USA World Cup.
1: I was fortunate back then. FIFA had a FIFA representative at every venue and they had an American with them. And I was fortunate enough to get the Foxborough site. Argentina was up there for some matches, Nigeria, South Korea. Matter of fact, I was there uh, the day after Maradona got banned, and Maradona was sitting in the crowd doing live radio, sunglasses on like nothing had happened. But it was was an unbelievable time, right? Foxborough, I was at Foxborough in the Meadowlands. Meadowlands just watching games. Foxborough helping out. I was at both venues, sold out. I remember I took my father to the Italy Island match. We had real good seats behind the goal in the, the Meadowlands. And halftime, I had to take them up to the concourse. It was so hot. It was early July, I believe. But I got great, great memories of being at the Scots Club with Billy Gelka, who played for me in Southern Connecticut, and best friends with Hawks and Miola and Tab. Being there six in the morning with these guys and then going over and tailgating. In the uh, Foxborough booth, Hakeem Milandjewin showed up with, I believe, the president of Nigeria. And that was during the 94 when the uh, Rockets had just beaten the Knicks in the NBA Finals. Former President Bush came in, I believe, with his grandson, Jarl y- Havalanche, I guess was the number one guy at FIFA then. They all sat up there watching. There was some great, great games, great crowds. You know, and again, I was 34 at that point. I never thought in my lifetime I'd see the USA host the World Cup. But from purely the logistical sense and not necessarily the USA team, you know, I got a lot of memories of just how the whole thing worked. The games in Orlando in the heat. I believe Holland, maybe Italy, Holland played in Orlando in the heat. But I'll kick it back to you. Your memories of uh, not necessarily the USA stuff yet, but the cup in general?
2: Well, I think for me, um, one of the great things that happened with US soccer was we said, hey, we're hosting this World Cup. We need to do a technical report. Since it's all over the United States, we're going to be regionally, certain guys would have certain areas. So me being on the West Coast, even though I was living. At the time, at Old in Virginia Beach, Old Dominion, I came out to work all the games that were played at Palo Alto, Stanford Stadium, and all the games at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. So that was fantastic. I saw eight games live. Coaching the U.S. team in 1990, I would have preferred to be on the bench. Uh, Knew all the players, had a chance to work with them in 91-92, leading up to the World Cup. But some great memories, as you mentioned, probably some of the highlights were surely watching the uh, semifinals and the final live in Pasadena at the Rose Bowl. Uh, seeing the final with Brazil, Italy was was phenomenal because uh, that was the second World Cup final that I saw live. I saw the one in, in Madrid, Spain, between Italy and West Germany. Now I'm seeing Italy, Brazil. The other highlight, I think, is that uh, You know, my dear beloved brother flew out. He was there for the semi and and the final. I think the real challenge was, I think everyone, and to this day, it's still the greatest World Cup as far as revenue made and still the uh, average attendance that I don't think anyone will ever break until maybe comes back here in 2026. The attendance was, you know, sell out everywhere throughout the United States. First time a World Cup was played in three different time zones. No question, I think what uh, that World Cup did, uh, because the World Cup is a a world stage, it showed the world that the United States could host the greatest event and and do it so well. And that's why it's coming back in uh, four more years.
1: At the risk of being a bit self-serving, Ralph, what impact do you think qualifying the team in 90 and taking taking the team to Italy. How did that affect uh, the 94 Cup?
2: Well, I think it was, you know, the game in, in November of 1989 was imperative to beat Trinidad to Baco there to get to the World Cup in Italia in Italy that 1990 because we knew we were hosting the 94 and to not have us in a World Cup and have that experience would have surely been difficult for the 94 team. Uh, And I think there's a lot of correlation to what we just experienced just a month ago with the the team trying to qualify for Qatar, that this group of young players needs this World Cup to get the experience because we're hosting the next one and we're automatically in uh, in 2026. So when you're automatically qualified, you don't get those tough qualifying games. You don't get the opportunity to grow your players the way you need to grow them. And, uh, so the 90 World Cup surely groomed and gave a good baptism to players like Tony Miola, John Hawks, Tab Ramos, you know, Paul Caligieri, Marcelo Balboa, you know. And then what was added on after the 90 World Cup uh, surely made us stronger and better with Ernie Stewart and Thomas Dooley becoming citizens. and uh, you know, we had a really good pool of players there. But I, as we heard from Alexi, you know, that, you know, the, the 92 Olympic team that Lothar Asiander coached, the influx of players like Kobe Jones and Alexi Lalas and Claudio Reyna uh, surely added to Bo- Boris' team in, in 94. So I think clearly when you can carry over players and have World Cup experience, it, it's a big thing. And it's and it's it's massive because... There's nothing better in the game to have the experience of being there before and then doing it again.
1: You you just touched on this. The fact that you qualified for 90 and then we were in as the host in 94 and now we've qualified for 22, we're in as the host in 26. Let's assume Greg Berhalter still has the position, which we hope he does. How does Greg Berhalter go about preparing these guys in 24, 25 and not having to play Mexico? in Mexico or in elimination games. So how obviously they can set up friendly games, but how difficult a task is that to try to simulate that type of pressure?
2: Well, I think anybody that gets an automatic pass, uh, or by being the host nation, they, they always say that that's a little bit of a detriment that you don't have those games and, and really test the players in, in a real true competitive environment. But I think uh, the players will get better because of the age and experience and where they all are playing presently, whether it's MLS or abroad. Uh, but secondly, I think the maturation of those players will make a big difference in four years' time, because they'll be more in their prime and and then in their beginning of their careers. And I think the other factor is that you'll you'll have gold cups to try to win again. You'll have those kind of competitions that you play for your club teams, whether it's Champions League uh, or CONCACAF Champions League. And and then maybe, you know, they themselves uh, having little mini tournaments and so forth. I saw that yesterday, for example, they announced that the U.S. team, in preparation for uh, Qatar in November, they're they going to play Uruguay, who's going to the World Cup. So they'll have some series of games. And I think, you know, sometimes you just got to take your team and go play, you know, abroad and and take them to tough places to play and play big nations. well,
1: there's so many guys right now playing for Champion League's club But you're right that over the next three years after Qatar, that pressure alone should should increase the individual individual development of the guys. You know what I remember? I remember in ninety four. I remember in the Colombia game, Tab running wild on the fly, just creating stuff. So Tab was very good in the Colombia match. I remember watching Hawks and Tony, Alexi, obviously. And really for me as a young coach, young person, then I was a little bit in awe war that, you know what? We had bridged the gap and never did I, when I played in Long Island in the sixties and seventies, did I ever think, you know, we would host a cup in 94 and be competitive. And we were.
2: Well, I, I think Ray, you know, you're hundred percent right. I mean, I, I always tell this story that in 1985, I'm walking out of El Camino Stadium after we lost to Costa Rica with the chance to go to Mexico with Mr. Walt Chiswick, and I was very disappointed. And his words to me were, just be patient. Just be patient, we're gonna get there. And fast forward, in 1990, we're there. And in 1994, we have the World Cup in our country. So I think that what's, what's transpired for soccer Everybody, meaning players, coaches, referees, administrators in the last 30 plus years has been fantastic with the growth of the game at every level. And my memories with that U.S. team and uh, writing that technical report, I got to watch three of the U.S. games live uh, with the Columbia big win. Because we had played Columbia nine times and lost nine times to them. We had uh, played... Uh, Romania with a great player like Haji there. And and then we, on July the 4th of all days, in the round of 16, we played Brazil. Uh, those experiences for those players, for our, our fans, for everyone, I think were what you always want. Those are, those are lifetime memories that you don't forget. You know, in speaking to a lot of those players on that team, they really remember that moment more than anything else, as we heard all the time that, you know, they last for you that makes such an impression that it's the best. I mean, let's face it, to coach or play or referee in a World Cup is fantastic. And when you're wearing the U.S. colors and you're hearing the anthem and you know you're representing the whole country, I don't think there's anything better in my lifetime that I've ever experienced. And I know the players all feel the same way.
1: All right, let's get going through with Alexi Lalas. Alexi's a soccer legend and defender, was a standout for our 1994 World Cup. He's been the GM of the San Jose Earthquakes, New York Red Bulls, and the LA Galaxy. And in 2006, was elected to the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Today, he's a soccer analyst for Fox Sports. Okay, Alexi, He came into the national spotlight with the 94 Cup. What do you remember most from, from that, that time with the national team and, and the preparation?
0: Well, it seems like yesterday, uh, and it wasn't when I do the calculation. You guys will will understand and I think appreciate and respect that the world was very different back then. Uh, the world in general and certainly the soccer world and, and certainly the U.S. soccer world. It was a, uh, um, a Wild West type of uh, existence and environment uh, at the time. I tell the story all the time that, you know, a couple weeks before the World Cup in 94, I got on a plane. I got in my middle seat, as we were wont to do back then in uh, in economy, which is certainly how we traveled most of the time. And I sat down next to a, a wonderful uh, older woman and we struck up a conversation and she asked me what I did. I said, I play soccer. She asked, you know, what's your job? I said, well, I play soccer. And she said, well, what do you do for money? And I said, well, I play soccer. And, and two weeks later, you know, I was in front of a billion people running around uh, on the World Cup. And that's just to illustrate you know, the weird type of uh, of moment and environment that it was. But one of the reasons why I'm talking to you today, guys, is is because of that 1994. I lived the power of what a World Cup can do to an individual. It changed my life forever and opened up incredible doors both on and off the field. It makes me very, you know, proud to think back and nostalgic for uh, for that incredible summer that changed my life. But it also reminds me of what's coming in 2026. And I can't wait to do it all over again in a very, very different environment and and climate. Thanks to, you know, so much hard work on and off the field from you guys and and everybody, uh, everybody out there to make this truly a unique soccer nation that is going to welcome the world in 2026 into a very, a very different and vibrant and passionate and discerning and educated uh, American soccer community and culture that exists and has been cultivated over those years.
2: Well, Lex, you know, it's, It's great to see you, first of all, and hear you talk all the time on TV. It's fantastic. But, you know, a lot of things that you've experienced and gone through, for all the players who have never been there before, what can you tell them about the difference in those games, meaning, like, you go from an MLS club game, or even the guys now that are playing in Europe, and, you know, now they have to come and play. And I heard in the very first game, you know, a World Cup qualifier versus a club match or a Champions League match. Uh, to the nations that we travel to in CONCACAF.
0: I mean, look, you you guys have have been in charge of of molding young players, and and not just the physical part of them, but the the mental part of it. And really, that's that's what it often comes down to: the actual kicking of the ball, you either you either got it or you don't. And there's there's you know a limited you know ability, and, and there's a ceiling. But when it comes to processing the you know the the mental challenges out there and being adaptable, and I think if If one thing the last couple of years has taught us, it's the ability to be adaptable and flexible. And, you know, the ones that have really kind of succeeded are the ones that can very, very quickly suss out a situation, recognize what it is, what it isn't, and adapt their game to that. And so whether it's playing in the craziness of CONCACAF or playing in Champions League or playing in a World Cup, they all have different types of mental challenges. And I I think for me it was about getting over the the awe factor cuz you know i grew up at a time where i didn't see soccer in general you know, i certainly didn't have it the way that we have it on a steady diet and stream that the that, you know the young people have today and so for me it was it was not just realizing a dream it was kind of pinching myself and then getting very getting over the fact that i was there i mean i'll never forget walking on the field for the at, at the world cup for the first time and being Kind of taken aback that there wasn't a soundtrack because I associated all big events, whether it was sports or entertainment, with a soundtrack going on. And to not have that music playing, you know, it, was, it was a little jarring not to have that. And you got to get over that very, very quickly because the whistle is going to blow. And the sooner you realize that's the same game that you've been playing since you were a kid, albeit with a lot more fanfare and, and, and certainly a lot quicker um, the better off you're going to be. And some some players either don't get over it or they take a long time to get over it. And sometimes by the time they get over it, it's too late. but it it can it can shape you. every every touch of the ball, every result, every moment can, you know dictate your 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 future. and that can get pretty heady. And that can be, you know, a, a lot of pressure. And if you don't kind of harness it and use it to your advantage, it can become burdensome burdensome
1: So Alexa, the u s. has drawn England. Iran and then the winner of Scotland, Wales, Ukraine. Yep. What do you think of the draw? What do you think of the challenges? What What do you expect eight months out?
0: So you know, we did the draw the other day on Fox, and I think I, I think we were all pleasantly surprised. That, you know, some would say. Cautiously optimistic, but I wouldn't even say cautiously. I'm I'm incredibly optimistic about a pathway to get out, to get out of this group. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't get our ass kicked by England. England's a very very good team, but bring it. And I think it shows a lot about how far we've come in the reaction that we had to England. And we know we're you know the incredible love hate relationship that we have with England, and it's you know decades and decades of influence and connection. And you know then there's the uh, uh, you know, big brother, little brother type of thing and the snobbery and all that kind of stuff that goes into making this an amazing game. Obviously, Iran, uh, you know, harkens back to 1998 and then all of the geopolitical stuff that surrounds them, as it does if it's possible that that we get Ukraine. And Ukraine probably of those three teams is the, is the strongest. I don't know if they're going to get through, but from a competitive standpoint, I don't want to play Ukraine in 2022. I mean, that is... That is the world's team. <laughs> I'm as sentimental as the next person, but that's not necessarily a good thing. You got enough things that you're going to be against you, uh, and that you have to combat going into a World Cup. Let alone having this team that the entire, well, most of the most of the world is going to be uh, going to be behind. But having said all of that, this is there's definitely a pathway out. I think it's a fascinating group. I think that the balance, not just in this group, but in the entire World Cup, I don't think there's a, a group of death, guys. I mean. I just think from from top to bottom and even within groups, uh, I'm hard pressed to to pick who ultimately comes out of a lot of these groups. And yeah, you have your elites, but you're a better man than I if you can if you can figure it out in particular with this uh, with this World Cup. But you know, bring on England. We're going to be thrown into, you know, kind of that comfortable underdog role that we that we have used for so many years to our uh, to our advantage against uh, against England. I think we will be looked at as uh, you know, maybe a little better than than Iran. And so maybe we'll be, you know, more of a, more of a favorite in that game. And then who knows, uh, uh, like I said, of the three that come out, but there's three quality teams there. So it's going to be a real even balanced group, but absolutely I have no problem saying that I believe the U.S. is coming out.
1: Just tied into that question, Lexi, what do you take? I think it was 14. What do you take out of the 14 match
0: USA qualification? What did you see? Any thoughts? You know, from my perspective, I thought, I thought you saw a team that uh, that continued to mature and grow. And that's kind of obvious because they're so young and inexperienced that was going to happen. And we saw it happen in real time. And these individuals grew, I think. You saw some of that depth that we talk about, and I think rightfully so, kind of, you know, come to come to bear. And I think you saw a coach. I think you saw a coach in Greg Burhalter who is still relatively young and quote-unquote inexperienced. And certainly when it comes to the international game, I think you saw him mature. And in particular... Why is that important? I think it's important because Greg Burhalter came in and kind of felt that he wanted to do some things differently in terms of the way that this team plays. Now, nobody's crying for him because, you know, he has incredible talent at his disposal and maybe and arguably the most, the highest level of talent and the most depth and amount of talent at his disposal. And so these, as, as Tata Martino would say, these are champagne problems, but you still got to find a way to harness that and make some tough decisions. And he certainly made some mistakes along the way. But ultimately, his first task was to qualify this team. And he did that. Right now, I think the biggest question mark, it's not a problem. It's just the reality of the situation of the last couple of years. Everything that we are basing our assessment on, either Greg Berhalter and this team, is relative to them playing in CONCACAF. Because that's pretty much all that they have done. And we know it's about much more than that. We've always dominated in CONCACAF. We've been to many, many World Cups. So the achievement the other day of qualifying the team gets a pat on the back, but we don't want to break our arms pat ourselves on the back because we've been there before. And ultimately, I think the real assessment for him and this team is going to come in November and December, as it should, because that's really what it's all about. It's doing well at a World Cup and being able to come up against elite teams and, and look better than we have in the past.
1: Lex, I got two, que- two questions, mm-hmm. kind of separate subjects. One, you played at Ruckus, mm-hmm. played for legendary coach Bob Riasso. Talk a little bit about your recruitment. I believe you're from Michigan mm-hmm. and
0: your experience at Ruckus. Well, I did. Uh, so I grew up in Michigan right outside of uh, Detroit. And I grew up playing soccer and hockey. And I knew that I wanted to at least try to play division one soccer. So that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> what was possible were some different, was not necessarily uh, what, what I was able to do. My father called up uh, Bob Riasa, who was the head coach at Rutgers at the time, like you said, and said, listen, I got this kid, he's six four. He's done this and this from a soccer perspective. He's got okay grades. And, and Riasa said, well, let me see him. And so we drove the 16 hours out and, you know, got off at exit nine at the turnpike there in New Jersey. And I went in and I met him and he said, well, listen, we're going through kind of a rebuilding year and I can invite you to preseason and I can get you into the agriculture school. Now, I grew up in Michigan. I did not grow up on a farm, but that was the best thing that I had going at the time. I was getting rejected everywhere. And uh, this was the only so this is basically I did everything wrong in terms of finding a college. Right. I did no research. I had never been to to Rutgers University, let alone to New Jersey. And I got in. I got into the agriculture school and I said, that's, uh, that, that's fine with me. The good news is of all the programs that I was even looking at, this was far and away the best one. It gave me a stage and a platform and you know, a team with just incredible amounts of talent, as you guys know, in that area in New Jersey and Rutgers being the state school of New Jersey, they were able to pick some really, really good players. And you know, it changed my life.
1: Tell the audience a little bit about your broadcasting career. I mean, everybody knows you, what you found it to be, the challenges, the process, what you've you've gotten out of it so far.
0: So from the moment that I basically, you know, that my dad kicked my ass out at exit nine off the turnpike there, I always (laughs) considered myself an entertainer. And sometimes when you say that, people cringe because they think that it's somehow you don't take it seriously or you're not competitive. And that's not the case at all. I just always recognized that, I enjoyed practicing, which is another way of saying rehearsing. I enjoyed going on a field, which is another way of saying going on stage. I enjoyed putting on a uniform, which is another way of saying I putting on a costume and I enjoyed being in front of people and getting that reaction, by the way, that reaction, whether it was adulation or (laughs) in some cases, hate, I mean, there was a punk ethos too, that was going on there. I've always looked at myself as a performer. And when the ball stops rolling and I can't kick it anymore, I look for different ways to be able to continue to do that, to satisfy that we can call it anything that you want ego or (laughs) or anything, but to be able to do that. And so now when the red light turns on to still be able to be involved in the game that I know and love all these years after I stopped actually kicking a ball, I'm incredibly fortunate. I'm incredibly privileged to be able to do it. And I, you know, I'm keeping, keep pushing myself to get better and better and better. And there's more and more opportunities. And what's been really interesting to me is to see the amount of younger people, shall we say that in the past they would use soccer as kind of a stepping stone to something else or something quote unquote, bigger and better. But there's a whole generation now that's growing up that wants to be involved in American soccer media and just soccer media in general. And they look at that as the, the pinnacle. And I, I love that. Now, they can pry it from my cold, dead, red-headed hands, and I'm going to hold on to it as long as I possibly can, but they're coming, and I, and I love that they, are, uh, that they are coming. I still got a lot to learn. I still make plenty of mistakes, but I love, I love what I do. I love the entertainment aspect of it, uh, and I love the fact that we can foster debate and discussion. You don't have to agree with me, but I don't think our game has enough platforms where we talk about the game in different ways obviously civilly and respectfully but also with an understanding that it can be incredible entertainment and the things that we talk about when we're you know at the bar or at the, at the kitchen table or you know out with buddies or something like that that can be incredibly interesting it can be incredibly entertaining and from a soccer perspective it's something that every sport needs including soccer so it can help with the growth of the game
1: well i think also, you know, we've got some great personalities in television, but still parts of the country soccer doesn't get it to do, and I think it's because the media, they're uncomfortable with it. Yep. So the young people they now become bloggers, the young people that start writing for papers, not just being on television, young people on radio, I think it's going to help grow the game, guys and girls. Just like when corporate CEOs are, are young people who played soccer and are willing to put money behind the nationally, behind the MLS. I think you're right. I think the more and more young people to get involved at different levels and different layers, it's only helping the game grow in this country.
0: Yeah, but we, we also have to be very careful because as we continue to grow bigger, there's, there's a tendency to look down our noses when people come to the game. The last thing that we can afford when it comes to American soccer is to be exclusionary and to not be welcoming. When people want to come into our tent, we got to make it as welcoming as possible. All right? So, I will sit and I will explain what a throw-in is or offside. What I don't have time for is people that feel that it's beneath them to even look at it and, you know, whether it's in the media or or elsewhere out there. That's a problem that they have. But if you're just learning it, I got no problem. I will exp- I will explain it to. you, I love it. I'll put my arm around you. It's not you guys know, it's not that difficult a game to understand and very very quickly you can get bitten by that bug but the worst thing that we can do as a soccer playing nation is to have those people either not know that the tent is there or when the tent is there and they and they poke their head in that they feel intimidated or they don't feel welcomed by the sport and so i think we have to we have to guard against that whether it's people in the media or anybody else out there, because we need as many people coming into that soccer tent as possible. And there's plenty of room. It's warm, it's inviting, and it's a, uh, it's a wonderful life and it's a wonderful tent.
1: That's right.
0: I got another one for you, but I'll kick it over to Ralph first. Okay.
2: All right, Lex, um, you know, hearing you talk, takes me down memory lane. I, I have to say I had the, the due privilege of having you on my team, coached against you. I even go, Back, maybe you don't even remember this, 1991, uh, my team at Old Dominion came to Rutgers in that NCAA first-round game, lost to you guys 2-0. Uh, a good team, as you mentioned, team that was good enough to win it all. And I love Bob Riasso. I mean, he's one of my favorite college coaches of all time. But here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize, and we've gone through this absenteeism of our men's Olympic soccer team not qualifying, uh, on a different occasions. And you were on a team that people don't realize that went 9-0 until their last qualifying game when they already qualified for Barcelona in 1992. So I, I, I just would like for you to share not only the the, the that little run with those guys, because it was a hell of a team you had in 1992, made up some great players there on that roster that played with you in 94 as well. But I guess the question I have for you is, that Olympic experience, uh, because the Olympics are such a unique thing to anything we as Americans, uh, you know, cherish and love. So I'd like you to share that with the audience.
0: Yeah. So, you know, the opportunity to play in the 92 Olympics and 96 uh, Olympics as an overage player, you know, I'll never I'll never forget it. And, and to your point, Ralph, you know, while while as soccer people, we look at the World Cup as the the pinnacle. Uh, a lot of America still looks at, at the Olympics. And so it, it was a wonderful experience. but more importantly, in '92 in, in particular, you look at that team, and this is why when we don't make the the Olympics, it's it's such a waste of an opportunity because there was a whole group that was fostered on that Olympic team in '92 that matriculated up to the full national team, and guys that either like myself starred in that '94 uh, World Cup or continued on with the world uh, with the national team through the years and ended up starring. I mean, you got. Uh, you know, I mean, you could just, the list goes on and on. So myself, Kobe Jones, Brad Friedel, Mike Lapper, Joe Max Moore, Casey Keller was on that team, and, and it just goes on and on and on. And that's, as you guys know, and when it comes to development, not everybody is going to make it every single step on the uh, on the vertical vertically integrated type of chain that you have over there. But if you can get one or two players, that's great. If you can get a whole group of players. And I'll never forget Bora, who ended up being the 94 World Cup national team coach, coming and watching and scouting us as the 92 Olympic team. So he was already looking at possibilities that existed in that, in that situation. And to not have the ability to go to Barcelona, that would have not been good. And, and it's And it's not good when that happens. And so I look at it much more from a developmental standpoint of how important it was to be part of that Olympic team to have that Olympic team do well and to be seen by the national team and to have the confidence from the national team uh, staff that, yeah, we're going to bring these players in because we've already seen what they have done. And, you know, that in and of itself is development, right? There's a reason why you have youth teams. There's a reason why you have second teams. It's to foster the talent and the future talent for your first team, which ultimately is what the full national team is. Well,
2: I remember seeing you in the hotel room really a little down and the fans need to hear this story. You, 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 hurt your ankle really bad prior to the Olympics. And, uh, you were, you were really getting on Lothar and say, coach, let me get in. Let me get in. Let me, <laughs> let me get on the field, please. And I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it. I'll do whatever, even though the trainers say I can't play, you know, the last game was with Poland who went always to the, the silver medal. They lost to Spain in the final, uh, in front of 90,000. Just share that little story, because I remember you streaming out your guitar when I walked by the room and you said to me, coach, I'm going to get on this field somehow, some way. I'm going to talk my way onto the pitch.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you guys know how injuries can play havoc with your mind and your mental state as a player. Right. And so I broke I broke my fifth metatarsal uh, a few weeks before the actual Olympics. And what, it, what they ended up saying was, look, we're going to have to at some point do uh, you know put a screw in there. But for now, let's try to see if, you, if we can find a way for you to, to at least walk. And what we ended up doing was, we spent thousands and thousands of Olympic dollars to come up with a cast that fit, it was my left foot, that would fit over my foot and then into, I used, back then I wore like 11, like a size 11, and it would fit into like a size 13 on my left foot. So I was wearing two different sizes shoes and I just wanted to get on the field. Like you said, I I just wanted to say that I stepped on the field at the Olympics and to his credit, Lothar Osiander, I, I love him. And he, he went out there and he watched me and I was like, you can watch, here's what's going to happen because I could not even walk. And they pumped me full of whatever they needed to do. They put my foot in this cast that shifted the weight off of that fifth metatarsal. And I was able to run. And I ended up being able to play about a half in that, in that last game. And, it meant a lot to me that that he would put that that he would put me in there, but it was it was a lot of work and a lot of persuasion uh, ultimately. But you know, I, I wanted to find a way to get on the field, and I, I didn't know at the time. But like I said, good things were to come uh, later on in terms in the forms of the world of the World Cup, and I ended up getting that screw put in when I got back from the uh, Barcelona Olympics, and I still to this day have it uh, in my left foot.
2: I just think the audience needs to know that. You know, from that 92 Olympic team, as you mentioned, uh, Bora was there. I was with Bora in 91, 92 when he first took over. And, you know, obviously the saying then was, you know, college guys really aren't the farm system. and You know, we got to find a better way. But the, when I look at this group, Lawless, Friedel, Kobe Jones, Lapper, Max Moore, Raina, Chris Henderson, Manny Lagos, Mike Burns, Kurt Anoffel, Troy Dyack, Cam Rass, Steve Snow, Dante Washington, Eric Imler. I mean, a group of guys that are involved in the game at different capacities, guys that have served the game. Some, As you mentioned, some guys that moved from the 92 Olympic team with you to the 94 World Cup team. So it was a special group, and uh, that brings me to my next question because I think you work with three icons in our country as your coach. So I just want you to like a snippet of what you think of these guys. So let's just start with Lothar Asianda.
0: Yeah. So Lothar, uh, you know, for, for the first time I I started thinking about, you know, how I played as opposed to just playing off of feel started to thinking, think more about patterns. I started to think more about, he really instilled in me a, you know, a love and a respect and a belief for the proper long ball, not just in terms of, uh, of where it goes, but how it's hit and understanding all of that kind of stuff. And we used to do patterns and, you know, I would get that ball back and, you know, the switch would be on and he would be talking about, you need to be able to get that ball out of your foot in that first touch that sets up your next touch. And then obviously have, you know, the technical ability to hit that thing 50 yards across the field. And the trajectory was, was, it was in play and all of that kind of stuff was in play. And I knew I had done it right when he would just say, lolly, he would call me lolly. And I knew that that was, that that was right. And we would just do it over and over and over again. And so there was the, the X's and O's part that I loved and appreciated about uh, Lothar. And then there was, as you guys know, it's, it's, it's not all about that. It's also about finding what motivates people and understanding your players. And so, you know, he would make a comment uh, in a good-natured way about my hair or something like that, or, you know, the guitar playing that I was doing or something like that. And while on the surface... That's an innocuous kind of throwaway type of interaction. But all of that comes into play in terms of the relationship and the dynamic that you have with the coach. All of it matters, even though you might not think it matters in terms of what you do on the field. It does. And I'm not saying that you need to be best friends with your, uh, with your coach, but you know, the communication that you have, the moments of communication, whether it's you know, before a game, whether it's during the game, or whether it's just you know, walking in a hotel or, or down the street. All of those different things combined are, are important. And you guys you know know a whole lot more about this uh, than I do, but the art, and it really is an art of coaching. You know, For Lothar, it was a great opportunity to get a very different type of coaching than I had gotten in the past and to add that to my arsenal going forward.
2: Okay, so going forward, you go from there, you mentioned it, and it was massive because it was in our country, the World Cup in 94. Uh, Bora. I mean, he's a one name guy. You don't need to say anything more than say Bora. Everybody knows him in the world as Bora.
0: Yeah. So Bora, two things with Bora. One, he taught me that little things matter. And he did it in a way that drove me crazy. And I wasn't the only one. Um, <laughs> and yet now I, I I cursed him for it at the time. And I love him for it now. You know, little <laughs> things like, and I'll never forget, you know, his his whole thing was you have to be aware of everything that is going on. Not even just in your, your, your the game, like in life. And he came in once to the, uh, to the team and he said, in the 26th minute, you know, what happened? And everybody was throwing out things. Well, this was happening, this was happening, this was happening. And what he wanted to hear was that the AR on the opposite side of the field had stopped and gone and talked to the coach or something ridiculous. And we were like, why does this even matter? And his whole point was you got to be able to see everything that is going on and little things matter how we tied our shoes. It used to, you, you know, you mentioned Joe Max Moore. i I'll, you know, I, I can vividly remember him just, you know, steam coming out of his ears as Bora told him how to tie his shoes because <laughs> in his mind and in a lot of our young dumb minds, it's like, well, why does that even matter? well, there was, a, there was a method to the madness, and he would talk about, well, how you hit the ball. The surface that the ball comes off of when it hits off of your foot can actually be impacted by where that knot is and all that kind of stuff. And actually, if you look at the way that shoes evolved, cleats evolved, you know, they started putting it on the side and putting it out of the way to give you a much more plain and, and true surface to hit. So, you know, th- those types of things. I'll, I'll tell you this last story about Bora. Bora was always testing you. Uh, And how you were going to react constantly asking you questions, constantly poking and needling you. When I first got to the team, I had really long hair and uh, his assistant came to my hotel room and I was early on. So I wasn't certainly wasn't on the team. He came to my hotel room and said, Bora wants you to cut your hair. And I was like, what the no, there's no chance. This is America. And I'm screaming and yelling and talking about freedom and, uh, and Bora was testing me. Because I would have done anything at that moment to be part of the team. And I, well, I I kicked and screamed the entire way, but I'll never forget walking the two blocks. We were in Arizona. We were in Phoenix, Arizona, walking two blocks down the street to just whatever the local barbershop was and getting my hair cut. And I came back into the meeting that night and Bora came walking in and he saw that I had my hair cut and he just nodded at me. And from that day on, and that was still, you know, a year and a half before the World Cup he never said another word about my hair because that was a test and I had passed that test and I proved to him that I would have done anything. It might have been a completely different test for somebody else.
2: Okay, the last coach and a a very good friend of mine and we coached together with the Galaxy and he was also an assistant on that World Cup team in 94, the late Ziggy Schmidt.
0: Yeah, I mean, Ziggy, as you know, was this, incredibly interesting personality and a, you know, at times an incredibly fiery and emotional type of man. And yet at other times an incredibly stoic and laser focused type of man. And ultimately, uh, you know, at that point, let's see, I had, uh, I had played in Kansas city and I'll never forget going into, you know, another coach that I had, Bob Gansler's office and, and telling him, look, Bob, I've been burning it at both ends now for a number of years. This would have been in 1999, uh, burning it on and off the field for a number of years. And I need to, I need to take a break. And he didn't try to talk me out of it. Maybe because he knew that a year from there, they were going to go and win MLS cup. But, <laughs> and so I was out of the game for a year. I took a sabbatical, if you will. And it was the actual, the absolute right thing to do. But Ziggy knew that I was living in Los Angeles. And, he called me up and said, listen, um, you know, I've seen you around uh, here in Los Angeles. And if you're thinking about getting back into the game, we'd love to have you just come out and train with us for a little bit. You know, Ziggy's wheels were always, always spinning and it was exactly what I needed. And Ziggy always had really good timing and he brought me out and you know, the rest is history because ultimately the time that we spent together, you know, you were there, Ralph was the most successful in my MLS career. And I attribute it to the type of team that Ziggy had, the way that he formed it, the type of personalities that he brought in, and then the leadership that he had, and he he demanded excellence in a completely different way than I had been used to. And he ultimately did something at the time when I was in my thirties, which I'm not sure I believed w- was able to be done, which was to make me a better player. You know, there, there's a conventional wisdom out there that you are what you are, and and that is actually true in many cases, but. You know, Ziggy and you, Ralph, and everybody there because of that environment that was created, it enabled me not just to win and to kind of finish my career on a high note, but to become a better soccer player. And, you know, players think they know it all and they think they've uh, they've figured it all out. And we we really haven't.
1: All right, Alexi, I'm going to steal a game. You're kind of an East Coast guy a little bit. Oh, I'll yeah. Steal a game from Michael K of the Yes Network called Rapid Fire. I'll ask you a question. Give me the answer as quick as you can and as sure as you can. Okay. Any level, amateur pro, what coach impacted you the most?
0: I, I would say Bora, but Bob Riasso took me to a whole nother level. I made it up as I went along for the most part growing up. Uh, you know, my, I had wonderful soccer people in my life, but the level of coaching that I got when I got to Rutgers through Bob Riasso was something that I had never experienced before. Um, Also, you know, he's the first person ever to look me in the face and, and use words that cannot be repeated here. Uh, so it was it was such a wonderful experience. Oh my God, I'll never forget the first time we were at we were playing at Army, and we played like crap. And I was a freshman starting, and he brought us in, and there, he looked at every one of us, and he MF'd us up and down, and words were just flying out of his mouth that I had never heard as this kid from Michigan. And he, it spits flying out of his mouth, and he scared the living you-know-what out of each and every one of us. We went back out on that field. There was no chance we were losing that game. So it was a whole other level of, of leadership. And really, it, it, it turned me into, you know, I don't know, as corny as it may sound, it turned me into a man very, very quickly, as did being in New Jersey and obviously being at Rutgers.
1: Favorite moment, highlight as a national team player?
0: Look, guys, I'm I'm here talking to you because of the '94 World Cup. It changed my life forever, and and uh, timing is everything in life. I had I had good timing. I had a lot of hair and a modicum of talent, and never has so much been done with uh, you know some hot oil treatments and some scrunchies and some uh, and, and like I said uh, a a bit of talent there. So the summer of '94.
1: Favorite moment as a club player.
0: You you want to, when all is said and done, win things. And my MLS career had been not just mediocre. At times, it had been piss poor until I got to the Los Angeles Galaxy with Ralph and Ziggy and, and all those players. And, you know, so winning, winning not just an MLS Cup, um, but winning the first one in Galaxy history, that will always be something very, very special. And there was a huge sense of relief when Carlos Ruiz put the ball in the back of the net and they could never take it away from you because... There's a lot. There's a lot of people that don't get that. One person wanting a foxhole with you, Joe Max Moore, most competitive uh, person that I have ever met in my life is Joe Max Moore. I'll tell you a real quick question. And for those that don't know, Joe Max Moore, former U.S. men's international, uh, another UCLA product. God, they all went to UCLA back in that day, back in those days. Um, <laughs> so it's a, and this has to do with Bora uh, before the World Cup in '94. Uh, it was 22-man roster, and we were all training almost two years ahead of the World Cup, kind of traveling around the world, and there was going to be the final cuts. And I'll never forget Bora many years later telling me that on the day that he made those those final decisions, he picked Joe Max Moore because he watched him play a game of soccer tennis. And Joe Max Moore, for those that, that don't know, as I said, was the most competitive man uh, and player that I've ever come across in my life. He wanted to win at absolutely everything. He was wired and is wired differently than all of us. And he couldn't, he couldn't turn off that competitive drive. So it didn't matter if it was a World Cup game or a game of tiddlywinks or uh, you know watching ants on the sidewalk go. He needed to win. He needed to constantly win and beat you. And so that competitive drive and spirit was on display in that moment, in that game of soccer tennis, and Bora Militinovich, the head coach of the national team, looked at him and said, you know, this is the, the last part of the roster. And I need people that are going to go through a wall for me. And that in that moment, Joe Max Moore made the 94 uh, World Cup team.
1: Last question from me. My former
0: player, your broadcast
1: partner, what are your thoughts on Rob
0: Stone? Oh, God, how long do you have? So I've known Rob now for decades and decades. And first and foremost, he's one of my best friends. And just a wonderful, not just a friend, a wonderful father, a wonderful servant to the sport. And keep in mind that, you know, this is a legend in a lot of different sports when it comes to broadcasting, but near and dear to his heart has always been and will always be soccer. And his championing of this sport is a constant. It never, ever dies. Even when he's off doing, you know, huge events college football, he he does everything from college football to bowling, to wrestling, to a million different things. He always comes back home and home for him is, uh, is soccer. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I am so happy to be able to call him a friend and to be able to work with him because it's an absolute pleasure to look down that desk now for so many years and so many tournaments, including the tournament coming up in November and December over there in Qatar and, Anytime I get to look down that desk and I see Rob Stone down there, I know it's going to be a good day.
1: Look, he, he has always been humble, and my interactions are not nearly now as much as you are with him. He is still humble to me. He's the same guy I had in the state team. I call that guy for anything. We're, do, we're doing a thing for John DeBrito who passed away. I call him for anything. And the guy gets back to me within 24 hours, and nine out of time, ten times, it's a yes. He's, he's a tremendous guy, Yep, tremendous guy, and he's I watch him on the Big Big East pregame show for football. For basketball, excuse me, the Big Ten football. And you're right. Whether well, he's with Urban Meyer, with you and uh, Stuart Holden, does not matter who he's with. He fits in. He knows Donnie Marshall. He knows what he's doing. He's very comfortable. And he's good at deflecting to the marquee guys, which are you and Urban, and has no problem doing it. He's an yep. amazing guy. Don't tell him I said any of this. I will Absolutely don't not. not his head any bigger. Absolutely There's not. Time. Ralph, back to you. Okay, Lex. Let, so we'll put a wrap on this, but I, I think
2: again, sometimes just like the story you shared about the fifth metatarsal, I always happen to be with you, uh, at this game, U.S. Open Cup final against New England Revolution at Cal State University of Fullerton, and uh, the late Fernando Clavio, another teammate of that '94 World Cup, was the coach of the Revolution, and the Revolution was snake bitten by losing to the Open Cup, losing MLS Cups, just like the Galaxy for the first three. But I just wonder to, this day, whether it's Dr. Padilla or Howard or Lieberskin, they all wondered what motivated that goal celebration, the Golden Goal, and how did you come to the grips that went to end that run? Go ahead, it's yours.
0: Uh, so Cal State Fullerton, is, as you know, has a long history when it comes to soccer. Um, we actually used to play national team games there and, you know, NWSL just was playing games there just the other day. Uh, so it continues to be a, you know, a iconic type of venue. Uh, and for those that don't know, there's this, the whole, um, end zone, if you will, of this stadium is, you know, for lack of a better word, like katsu or something like it's just this incredible, you know, green mess. And at that point I wasn't starting. And so inevitably, if you're not starting, you will just get to talking to people. And, and, and inevitably, it will come to, well, what would happen and, and if you got in there? And this was just starting to be the time where you would kind of plan out your celebrations if and when you score a goal. And I knew that if I got in there, chances are there was going to be a set piece, and that's where I did my damage. And so I remember turning to, I can't remember who was on the bench there, Peter Vajanas or somebody like that, and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run up that hill. Now, I had never been to that hill. I had never seen it, and as is often the case, uh, you know your your eyes tell you something, and the reality might be something differently. So, anyway, I get on the field, and I score a goal, and I start running, and I gotta I gotta play this thing out now because I've I have talked about it, and I get going, and it becomes very very clear, very very quickly that I have completely misjudged how deep this is uh, and the thicket that it actually is. And even being six foot four, and you can actually see it on the tape, I start high stepping just to try to get over some of this, uh, you know, brackage and stuff like that. And I get about halfway up the hill and I said, well, this is, this is as far as I'm going to get. And that's when I stopped my celebration, but I'll tell you what, to this day, I still get people that ask me about that and come up and and talk to me about that. If everybody that asked me about that goal was actually at the game then there would have been like 60,000 people there. So it's uh, (laughs) a, it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool moment. And people still, you know, it kind of has taken on a, a, you know, a a greater, you know, folklore type of meaning out there. But yeah, it was a, it was, it was a, it was a good day, you know, put that, put that ball in the box where I can get it. And oftentimes good things happen.
2: All right. My last question, I'd be remiss because my, my dear assistant coach has put up with me for many years here at University of Redlands asked me to ask this question. When did you come to the conclusion about set pieces when you coined that phrase? Was it still as a player or when you got into the broadcasting?
0: Well, I mean, as a player, I, I knew how important they were. And, you know, as a, as a defender, your, your moments to shine often are obscured. You know, we, we can appreciate them and we can respect them, but it's not going to make, you know, the, the nightly news. So I knew, and you know, it started at, at an early age that when that ball came in the box, especially when it came to, uh, you know, balls in the air that I could do some damage and I could in that moment, have that moment. And so from a soccer playing perspective, I always valued them and recognized the value of them. Um, and then when I got, you know, to broadcasting, it just, it just became a thing and it's not Look, as as you guys know, sometimes it can be the great equalizer. You can be getting your ass handed to, right? And yet you get that one set piece, and if you if you're organized and you have players that can put the ball consistently in an area, and you have other players on the other side that can get their head to it, it can it can be the decider, and, and it can be the decider at the highest level and at the lowest level. And so I you know I started you know talking about set pieces and really kind of hammering home how important it is and you guys know from a uh, from a coaching perspective you know set pieces they are about execution as we all know they're about preparation and they are about turning on or turning off in that moment because it's the it's the one time in our sport where it starts to approximate our other american sports right because it is a situation where it has been planned ahead of time. There is a stop and a start of it and it happens and either it goes off well uh, or it, or it doesn't. And I know you have recirculation and all, and all that kind of stuff, but I just, I love that there is, there is a method to this perceived madness that we see in front and it can be such an important and monumental type, uh, type of the game. And, you know, I just wanted to stress it. And so when I was on television, I just wanted to make a point of, hey, these are really, really important moments. And coaches spend a lot of time, and rightfully so. I mean, we even have set piece coaches now as part of staffs out there that specifically are there to talk to you know to to, uh, to figure out set pieces. And by the way, a set piece isn't just a corner kick. It can be a free kick, obviously. It can be uh, a throw in. It can be all sorts of things out there. I mean, even for that matter, it can be a it can be a penalty kick, but where you're training on a moment in time where the game stops, which is which is so minimal in our beautiful in our beautiful game. And so I just wanted to, you know to constantly highlight it and and show it, and it's just become a thing. and you know, I'll walk down the street and people will yell set pieces at me. <laughs> hey, listen before before we go, I just want to say thank you to you guys for everything that you you've done. I know, a lot of us that, uh, you know, that, that kick the ball and everything get a lot of attention and praise and credit and all that kind of stuff. The amount of work and energy and resources and, let's be honest, toil that has gone in for now multiple, multiple decades. It deserves attention and it deserves praise. And it's you guys, and it's and it's your colleagues, and so whether it's the college game or the professional game out there, just a kudos for everything that you're doing, and even if it's just you know a podcast or something like that, all of this matters, and it's all part of that tent that I was talking about. It's all part of this incredible American soccer family that we have that just gets getting bigger and bigger each and every year, and you know the pride that that I that I feel and the honor that I feel just hanging out with uh, with you guys, I can't overstate it.
1: Alexi, thank you for all you've done for the game and all you continue to do. Thank you.
2: Alexi, it's been a real pleasure to have you on, but more importantly, it was a real pleasure to say that I had the opportunity to coach you, and I'm really proud of what you did for the American game on the field and as well now in the broadcast. So continued success, my man.
0: That's very kind of you. Thanks, guys.
2: Thanks for listening for The Love of the Game. If you like this show, please give us a rating and a review. Share this with all the social medias and tell your friends. This podcast was produced by Influence,
1: and I'm Ralph Perez. And I'm Ray Reed, and we'll talk to you again soon on For the Love of the Game.